This is hell. Good Lord, am I white. I mean, I only vaguely heard of the Republic of New Africa from a cursory mention during a 300-level Chicago history course and a presentation on 1960s political movements, a talk the content of which was dominated by the Black Panthers, the Puerto Rican Young Lords, and the very, very white young patriots. And the Republic of New Africa started in Detroit, my hometown, the city where I was born, the city I grew up across eight miles from. I'm so freaking white, I had no idea of the impact created by the Republic of New Africa on black liberation, living that movement's effects on its activists, all of which can teach us lessons that can easily apply to what is happening today and what can be possible in the future. That is, if we knew exactly what happened with the Republic of New Africa, as so much is hidden by federal law enforcement agencies like the FBI that destroyed the movement. In a few minutes, we'll talk to historian Edward Onichi, author of Free the Land, the Republic of New Africa and the Pursuit of Black Nation State. Edward is Associate Professor of History at Ursinus College, where he teaches courses on African-American history, modern U.S. history, women's global political struggles, social movements, and music in Africa and its diaspora. Plus, we'll have the question from hell for you, this week's Hangover Cure, as well as Rotten History, and we'll be announcing the complete lineup of guests during this truncated week back from our annual summer break. A summer break I spent in Trump country, and I will be sharing my thoughts on that with you in a few I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing, as always, is Alex Jerry. First, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, uh, what are you going to be using as currency five years from now? What will we be using as currency five years from now? Using as currency five years from now. Now we won't need any. We'll be crumbling it up and throwing it in Lake Michigan. The listener with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins a This Is Hell black trucker's cap, Alex, which we just got delivered to us with the global This Is Hell logo in gray. You can see that cap right now, even order your own. When you go to thisishell.com and click on support to get to our swag page, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell. At our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. But we have to have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do most weeks, follow Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell. And Alex has this week's hangover cure, which oddly sounds familiar. This week's hangover cure, it, they all kind of sound familiar. I know. <laughs> this hangover cure is L. Seistein. According to Bloomberg News article from last week headlined, Hangover Cure Successfully Tested on Drunk Subjects in Finland. A group of Finnish researchers believe they've discovered what people have spent centuries searching for, a cure for hangovers. Writer Kaji Palahano reports, a dose of 120 milligrams of amino acid L-cysteine was found to reduce alcohol-related nausea and headache, while a dose of 600 milligrams helped alleviate stress and anxiety, according to a study published hmm. in the Journal of Alcohol and Alcoholism. <laughs> I you, love you that get, journal. You get that, don't you? <laughs> yeah. uh, by researchers at the University of Helsinki and the University of Eastern Finland. The randomized double-blind study had 19 healthy male volunteers consuming alcohol doses of 1.5 grams per kilogram over three hours in a controlled setting. The subjects were then asked to swallow placebo or L-cysteine tablets containing vitamin supplements. Researchers say that as well as reducing or even eliminating hangovers entirely, L-cysteine also helps reduce the need for drinking the next day. (laughs) (laughs) Not in my case. Uh, Thereby cutting the risk of alcohol addiction. So that makes this week's hangover cure. L. Seistein. I get alcohol and alcoholism. The journal is just really fantastic. And the one I really like is cat alcohol and alcoholism. I love that. It's so cute. So, Alex, any breaking news related to the show? Because things are still breaking at my home. Now it's the intercom system, which actually may be a bigger electrical problem with the circuit breaker. And being on the third floor and not having an intercom can be a problem when... During the virus, you depend more on package delivery, and you've had packages delivered to your home stolen, so more breaking news at my house. 
any breaking news in your life or having to do with the show while I was away on vacation, Alex? Uh, my kid was in here screwing around yesterday, so if uh, there's any problems, uh, it, might be, it might be him to blame. I can find evidence of that on uh, the Instagram page right now. Now everything's good. Uh, can I suggest two cans and a length of string? <laughs> might give your uh, give your apartment a nice uh, clubhouse feeling. Uh, we don't have those tubes at our house, those old-timey tubes where you talk down into the basement or down in the first floor, so I don't have one of those. One time I went up to one of those tubes, if people know what I'm talking about. It's just an empty tube that goes from the third floor all the way down to your mailbox, and you would yell through it, and the people could hear you downstairs. One time I went up to one of those right after moving to Chicago, and I wanted to test it, and right before I was going to speak into it, I inhaled... And I think I inhaled like 60 years of cobwebs and dust. It was really, really gross. Our annual family vacation to the lake in the heart of Trump country was, we are certain, unlike any of the other 64 years that preceded, as yes, we figured out that at least to the best of our knowledge, Called from oral histories of now past elders, our family has been renting cabins at the same resort for 65 consecutive years on the same lake, on the same piece of land. The virus forced us to socially distance, which means seeing family you love and being unable to hug or kiss them or even shake their freaking hand. We never entered each other's cabins, which eliminates socializing during big storms, and we had a few really big storms. We needed to always be alert, making certain, you know, none of us were ever downwind of anyone else, which led to this kind of chaotic choreography. This year I was going to get a fishing license and finally go fishing with my big brother for the first time and I don't know how long, but sharing a boat is problematic when it's a small dinghy, a rowboat that has a tiny seven and a half horse outboard motor on it, which is likely far too big. Not that it made a difference as my brother and I could not attend vacation at the same time this year anyway because of concerns over contact we had with others, or he had with others, and potential spread of the virus and the fact that I'm in Chicago and in an area that was the number one hot spot for the virus in early April. Which meant far fewer than the regular two dozen people vacationing together and instead just seven of us and no virus factories, none of the biological weapons known as children present at all, making for a very quiet, calm, peaceful holiday with plenty of time to reflect without any disruption. Sitting on the end of the dock, staring into the reflecting waters as the sunshine dances on the ripples while high on any number of seven different strains of weed I had with me this year. You can, it can really make you very, very reflective. But that reflection this year was interrupted, not by kids enjoying themselves. This year, in the midst of a pandemic that has killed 170,000-plus people in the U.S., the majority of which were completely avoidable if the federal government had acted like the pandemic was serious, the President of the United States had not dismissed what the world's leading scientists, what his own administration scientists were telling him. Sitting at the end of the dock, I was trolled by Trump and his supporters. The county where we vacationed voted 2-1 to one for Trump in 2016. It will likely be about there in 2020. That said, there were some Biden signs out front of some homes, which was, to be honest, shocking when considering the region's politics. But to be honest, I think there were just suburbanites who were up for the weekend in their weird little suburban homes they've built in the middle of the woods in a very disturbing way. So I don't really think they're even local voters. So what are those politics of the locals? That beautiful lake where I stare and think and contemplate and commune and listen and wonder and dream. That spot that has been the originating site of so many of my hopes and wishes will, on Labor Day weekend, be the home of the Trump Boat Parade. And everything about discovering that there would be such a parade and its details brought me right back down to earth and reminded me that even in a place of such natural magnificence, which at night on the same dock becomes a picture-perfect planetarium with the Milky Way clearly visible once the moon sets, surrounding us is the real world of selfish competitiveness, willful ignorance, and a culture of denialism that sees themselves as exceptional and innocent, basking in conservative nationalism and the belief that violence can save them from their own very exaggerated fears. The first time I saw the sign for the Trump Boat Parade was at a small butcher shop I go to every year. 
It's as big as my living room, and my living room is not that big. They have the best bacon I've ever had, which they get from a local farmer. In fact, I just brought a pound to Alex, as he will be enjoying it for the first time, and I need to get some for Pete as well. Uh, the butcher also gets their smoked fish from the best local smoker. Not me. I knew the owner was a Republican uh, because back in the early teens, he would play Fox News Radio. But I only heard it once. Uh, lo and behold, there was the poorly produced sign for the Trump boat parade as we were exiting with our goods. The sign was so bad, you'd think I made it. It was like, I don't even think the person used Photoshop. I don't know what they used. It looked like they just used Word and then somehow put one image of Trump on it. So the best bacon in the world is sold to me by Trump Nut. Great. Kind of ruins that bacon for me. Thanks. Actually, it doesn't. That bacon is delicious. The boat parade will cruise from the South Shore's west side to the east side. Luckily, our cabin is on the North Shore, and the event will likely not be visible from where we stay. Although the sound may carry, but it would likely be dis discernible. Even luckier, we won't be there. The parade will con conclude at a bar that, up until then, I had only assumed was owned by Trump supporters. The bar hosts an annual party that has an alternative title that starts, or sorry, an alliterative title that starts with the name of a major beer producer and sponsors the party, followed by the word bash. And quite a bash it is. From what I have seen in pictures in the local paper and articles I've read, the goal appears to be to get as many white, and I mean stark white, like how are you still that white in early August white, the whitest of white people, while drinking really bad beer and bad beer bash from plastic cups, likely stamped with the year so the attendees can attempt to remember what happened that year. That is, until they run the cup through the dishwasher too many times, making the year illegible and forgetting what year it was, and eventually storing it in a box in the basement for their children to throw out after their drunken slobs of parents have finally dropped dead. Meanwhile, they will be completely unaware they are discarding a relic from what they were from when they were conceived, which may explain their own alcoholism. The partygoers don't just stand around in bathing suits and swill bad swill, but they do it on boats, which they tie together just off the back of the bar, which will be the concluding location for the Trump boat parade. This year, they canceled the bad beer boat bash. However, online, those who opposed the cancellation said they would come this year anyway. So while the bar was allowed to be open while using common safety protocols, they decided, the owners decided to close for the day due to worries that the situation might get out of hand. But that's not st stopping the boat parade. Fortunately, the people on the North Shore may not have to suffer from the parade, as the lake is the largest inland lake in Michigan, and the parade will be floating on the other side six or seven miles from their shores, and that size allows for such a display of the night sky. And I forget all about the boat parade, Trump, and I sink back into nature, calmed by it, seemingly exhausted by it, and retreat indoors to our cabin that is literally falling down with a tree growing into the roof, what appears to be load-bearing paper towels that are shoved into nearly every nook and cranny of the exterior walls and foundation. Late at night, in a place with a big empty space, AM radio travels far, and I heard some of the ramblings that just may be the reason there is a Trump boat parade. Things like, Joe Biden supporters want us all to join ISIS. And religious radio shows telling you, whether being chased by a man-eating shark or in the sights of a machine gun, God is wet, waiting and ready for you to use the power of prayer. In the Trump boat parade world, Trump's opponent is necessarily the worst thing that the world has ever faced. By merely running against Trump, his supporters automatically hate his competitor as they are so offended by the idea that anyone would dare challenge what ap appears by all accounts to be their their god, small g god, so no emails, please, 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 please. Judging by how they view the power of prayer, their relationship with the Almighty is based on protecting them from the exaggerated fear of roving mobs of man-eating machine gun-toting sharks. And if I believe there were said man, machine gun-toting man-eating sharks, yeah, I could see how I would believe in our Lord Trump or, or that Joe Biden's secret plan is to have us all become members of ISIS, handing over the keys of the country to terrorists the moment he's inaugurated. 
So when I hear the local FM rock radio station playing Rage Against the Machines, Bulls on Parade, and Zach Della Rocha gets the part that goes, rally round the family with a pocket full of shells, they rally round the family with a pocket full of shells, I'm pretty certain local listeners have taken the advice to heart, thinking Rage war- was warning them that they needed to start building bunkers instead of realizing the whole thing's an anti-war song. Now I'm back from vacation in Trump country, but I really didn't ever get away at all. I didn't get away from the virus, which none of us can do, and none of us should imagine we can, unless you want the virus to be around a lot longer than it already has been. I mean, come on, they're already having unmasked pool parties in Wuhan, and we can't serve drinks outdoors without a mask yet. I also couldn't get away from the Trump hysteria that haunts our present and our future like a specter of death that is somehow welcomed by our other living, breathing human beings to bring about our destruction. And I would sit staring from the end of the dock for a moment, believing this is heaven, while knowing that what lurks in the background always, no matter where you find yourself, is this is hell and tomorrow tune in for the second part of what will be a triptych of my trip up north to trump country that that's at the beginning of wednesday's show concluding with part three during thursday's monologue with a story arc that goes from tragic reality to misguided hope and finally resolving in my own hypocrisy for judging others especially on the far right and liberals too progressives thrown conservatives i okay i guess anybody for indulging in their own fantasies that are filled with denialism turns out under capitalism we all have to have a fantasy world we dream to achieve in order to survive in the reality that again this is hell completely listener supported radio live stream and podcast go to this is hell.com click on support and see all the ways in which you can now contribute to the show coming up the republic of new africa and new africa independence movement and their impact on black politics to this day alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what are you what are you going to be using as currency five years from now what are you going to be using as currency five years from now the person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins a this is hell black truckers cap with the global this is hell logo in gray which you can find right now by going to our website this is hell.com and clicking on support we'll have rotten history tell you who will be the guests on the rest of this week's shows which stream live every morning at 10 chicago time here at this is hell.com podcast shortly after at this is hell.com world broadcast premiere every saturday morning of all four shows on wnur 89.3 fm chicago sound experiment and you can also hear this is hell in abbreviated one hour weekly formats on both lumpen radio wlpn fm on chicago south side and krfp fm radio free moscow in moscow Idaho, live from the United States where property has more rights than people. This is hell. In the 1960s, black Americans, tired of being colonized by the United States on land stolen from Native Americans, finally decided enough was enough and demanded their own republic in the southeastern U.S. The U.S. government was contacted and made aware the republic was open to negotiations. Here to tell us why the republic was seen as the solution, what happened to the Republic of New Africa, and the legacy of the New Africa independence movement. Historian Edward Onichi is author of Free the Land, the Republic of New Africa, and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State. Welcome to This is Hell, Edward. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Edward is Associate Professor of History at Ursinus College, where he teaches courses on African-American history, modern U.S. history, women's global political struggles, social movements, music in Africa and its diaspora, and more. You write, during the final weekend in March 1968, 500 activists and pan-African nationalists came together at the Black Government Convention to determine the destiny of the captive black nation in America. Participants included many of the leaders of black intellectual political thought of the time, Lawrence Gayat of the Student uh, Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and Director of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, Petty, Betty Shabazz, uh, school, a friend of mine, uh, the corner school by his house is the Betty Shabazz School, and it's Republic of New Africa Historical School, the uh, Kwanzaa creator, Milana Karenga. Uh, the convention's main organizers uh, brought them together so they could discuss their historic political conditions and the legal remedies available under international human rights law. So very much of the leading political uh, intellectuals of the time. But far too often, some of the, the greatest thinking by the greatest intellectuals never gets past 
the realm of those intellectuals, which is far too often dominated by academia. How aware was the public of this meeting? Were there high expectations about what might come out of the meeting? You know, I think that there were pretty high expectations. Uh, the expectation was that if you bring these various people together, as you as you said, leaders of so many different organizations throughout the country, some of the best thinkers of the time, then together, you know, they can overcome some monumental hurdles and achieve some really, really fantastic goals. So yeah, I think the expectations were high. At the same time, I don't think that anyone was really naive. And, and what I mean here is that with such high expectations, with such such significant goals, and with a clear understanding that people in power don't just turn things over without any type of conflict, a lot of what people discussed at that founding convention was, was about exactly that. Well, what happens when the state wages war? What happens to people who get captured and become political prisoners and prisoners of war? Those types of considerations, you know, at least in my reading, balance out any of the any of the high expectations that people might have had during that moment. I found this book fascinating. I think that this is it, what's really disturbing to me is I was born in Detroit. I was raised in East Detroit, mm -hmm. a town that changed its name from De East Detroit because it was so ashamed of being part of Detroit and that I only knew about this in a very vague way. How aware is even the black community to what the Republic of New Africa was and the accomplishments that it made? Uh, you know, outside of Detroit and maybe a few other locales right now, let's say probably Atlanta, not very aware. And that historically has been a problem for the people who have been working on or on or through this new African independence movement. And it's something that because people were aware and trying to come up with solutions to it, led to a little bit of conflict, led to some uh, changing of strategies and led to new, new formations within this broader new African independence movement. And, and so to, to be a little bit more clear, what I'm, what I'm talking about is there were a couple of moments in new African independence history where people split into different fragments, different, uh, different, different sectors of the movement, right? One of those moments was in the mid to late 1970s when Imario Bedelli, who was then president of the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa, um, he had been captured, right? And so for anyone who's aware of the Republic of New Africa, most of us know, if we know anything, right, most of us know that there were a couple shootouts. One of them was on August 18th, uh, 1971. And the result of that raid and shootout was the jailing of 11 people, some who were charged with everything from possession of illegal weapons to murder. Um, and some of them spent some significant time in prison. One of those people was Imario Bedelli, again, who was the president at the time. And during that time, there were some younger activists who were really getting their footing in the movement, who through their experiences in the movement were developing new ideas about how to best carry out their goals. One of those people was Chokwe Lumumba, along with people like Dara Abu Bakari and others. And uh, with, with Chokwe Lumumba and Dara Abu Bakari, one of the things that they realized was we have a president who's currently captured. He's a political prisoner. We have a provisional government that not too many people know about. And so when there are elections and people go out and canvas and they start to try to teach people about this movement and about the goals, most people just go along with whatever the, the organizer in that case says is, is the best way to, to respond, right? So let's just say it's Chokwe Lumumba, and he says, hey, there are these two people running for the position of the president. One of them is person X, the other is Imario Bedelli. And 
you know, in my opinion, Mario Bedelli is better because he's been president, then that's what the person is going to accept and say, well, that's who I'm voting for. And, and so, it, again, it's been it historically has been a problem for folks within the New African independence movement. It continues to be a problem, although at least from what I'm seeing at the current moment, it's the, the problem seems to be decreasing. There is a little bit more awareness because scholars have started to write about the New African independence movement because the history of the Black Panther Party and other Black Power era organizations has gotten some mainstream uh, awareness. It, it's making people more aware of the New African independence movement as a result. And, and so hopefully my book aids in that. You point out that after deliberating about religion, culture, sexism, and government repression on Sunday, March 31st, 1968, several dozen attendees in, in the convention agreed to sign a document declaring to the world that they would struggle for the complete independence and statehood of the black nation, which they named the Republic of New Africa. By advocating for a UN-monitored plebiscite, they would ensure that their people, whom they began referring to as New Africans, could once and for all determine where to place their consent of citizenship. Not that black political thought is monolithic at any time in human history, but what does this at least reveal to you about where leftist black political thought was in 1968 when they saw the solution as New Africa? Is black political thought on the left different today so that a new Africa would never even be considered? Really good question. Really good question. So one of the things that I point out in the book is that the decision to pursue independence and, uh, and territorial autonomy was a result of experience. The main organizers of that black government convention, they had been pursuing civil rights activism. They pursued integration. They tried to get their children into better schools and they tried to integrate uh, black intellectuals, black history and black culture into those schools with, with, you know, very little positive results. And so one of the stories that I tell is actually of Gaidi Obadeli, who during the early 60s was known as Milton Henry. He was part of the Pontiac uh, City Commission, and he was the one African-American on that city commission. And he felt as though he couldn't make any decisions that actually had any real impact on the lives of black people. It didn't change. He couldn't make any changes to their material conditions. On the other hand, he was a graduate of Lincoln University. And during his time at Lincoln, he befriended people such as uh, African, you know, international and African students, some who were from Ghana. And when he visited independent Ghana, he saw some of his buddies from Lincoln making decisions that had a direct impact on their people, something that he just felt like he couldn't do. And so it's those types of experiences that even after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, people started to question whether any laws would ever help black people actually exercise their full power and be, uh, be able to be able to exercise their full human rights. And so that helped them move to that position where they started to pursue independence. Now, this wasn't across the board, right? Not everybody on the left, not every radical or revolutionary agreed with that. Uh, so one of the things that I talk about is how the Black Panther Party had some mixed analysis about self-determination and, and independent nationhood. Huey P. Newton wrote a letter to then President Robert F. Williams in 1969 that he thought the idea was just premature, something that some people by the 70s would actually come to agree with, by the way, some people in the New African Independence Movement. Um, yet, point number 10 of their 10-point program calls for that UN monitor plebiscite, right? Whereby the black colony can determine its its destiny. And, and so they had some mixed opinions. Some people from the Black Panther Party, to my knowledge, particularly some folks from the East Coast, they agreed. And some of them ended up pledging allegiance to the Republic of New Africa. Many others, though, 
they saw revolution as being a different process with some different results. And, and so I think that that's something that we can can see even today, right? There are some people who still through the provisional government or one of the other new African independence formations are pushing for self-determination. There are others who consider themselves equally revolutionary who seek other solutions. They seek, you know, the destruction of capitalism, U.S. imperialism, global, global white supremacy, those types of things. But at least from what I can tell, they see more of a multiracial society that isn't hindered by white supremacy and, and those forms of oppression. So uh, I, I really would say that the same divisions that I write about and that people experienced in the 1960s and, and 1970s, they're still with us. There's still those fractures, still those disagreements. In many ways, I think it's healthy. I think that by struggling honestly and by taking the different positions seriously, people, no matter where they stand on independent statehood, can hopefully come to some agreements about you know, the things that actually matter such as strategies for destroying global oppression. You write that this declaration of the right to independence had a lasting impact on many dedicated activists' lives. The young man, one of the signers who went by the name Ulysses X, an Ohio paramilitary soldier who signed on to the declaration, recognized that officially declaring himself a self-styled soldier in the Pan-African Nationalist Movement meant that he would face heightened surveillance and potential threats to his employment and personal safety. Was it illegal? Is it illegal to announce you want to create an independent state within the United States? Is that treason or sedition or in some way interpreted as a crime against the state? By announcing you want a Republic of New Africa, have you committed a crime? Uh, you know, there were many of the people who were at that founding convention were lawyers. Uh, Gaidi Obadeli, for example, was a lawyer. They were well-versed in international law and they were well-versed in U.S. law. And so the language that they used, I think, is really key here. So instead of saying that, hey, here's this Declaration of Independence, we now declare ourselves you know, completely independent from the United States of America, and instead saying that here's this Declaration of Independence, we declare ourselves forever free, that's what the words say, right? But we're gonna do it according to international law, and according to, to you know, U.S. law, I think that they framed it as just a natural process that is protected by generally agreed upon, at least in theory, uh, precepts and, and legal theory across the world. Right. And they can point to they could. And, and it's also important to say that they considered themselves a colonized nation. And so they could point to other colonized nations that were waging revolution, that were struggling for independence and say, what we're trying to do is no different from those people. And by the way, it's guaranteed that the struggle for self-determination and nationhood is guaranteed according to the UN. And, and so, um, of course, that didn't protect them from government repression, right? And, and you mentioned uh, Ulysses X, as he was named at the time, uh, there are many, he and many other people actually experienced this government repression. They were accused of committing crimes, right? Some of the, one of the most famous incidents is the uh, 1981 Brinks expropriation in Nyack, New York, where people who belong to the Black Liberation Army and other formations, they had, they had joined forces. And, and this group, by the way, wasn't just New Africans. It also uh, had the participation of people like David Gilbert and others from the Weather Underground, right? And, and so the short version of that story is they were trying to um, fund their revolutionary work and they ended up attacking a Armor Brinks car and that was botched, right? It was a botched attempt to get that money. They ended up having a shootout. Some people died, police officers and, and uh, armor car guards. And 
through all of that, even though they framed that incident with mistakes and all as a revolutionary act that should protect them by, you know, according to international law, should protect them because they're trying to fight against this colonial force. The U.S. government treated it as a common crime. They treated it as robbery, attempted robbery, murder, those types of things. And, and so when it comes to legality, uh, it really that's that's really my long way of saying it really depends on who you ask, because the people who are involved with the movement, they say we're protected by international law. We can point to that 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 idea, that idea, the people who they were working against, in this case, the U.S. state said everything that you do is illegal at a certain point um, because of all the violence, because of some of the specific, some of the specific tactics, and really because we don't like you and we want to stop you, right? So, uh, and I say that because COINTELPRO was very explicit in its agenda to discredit, disrupt, and destroy any movement that sought black power, black empowerment, and the achievement of, of human rights. And so it's a tricky, it's a tricky question. I can't really just say, yes, it is illegal. Yes, it is legal because of those factors. We are speaking with historian Edward Onichi, author of Free the Land, the Republic of New Africa and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State. You write there were many more potential effects of Ulysses X's decision to sign the document of Declaration of Independence. How would his family and friends outside of the movement respond to his decision? Would participation in the movement have any noticeable impact on his spirituality, his romantic relationships? and any children under his care. This is where you're writing about the concept of lifestyle mm -hmm. politics. To what extent uh, is making such an announcement not only just a life choice, but a very life-changing choice? Is being so revolutionary, if you will, is one of the biggest obstacles to neither declaring that revolutionary nature or de you know, declaring the, the fact that you are a revolutionary is is one of the biggest obstacles to doing that the effect it will have on the most personal and intimate aspects of your life with your closest loved ones? Because I don't think that's something that people consider when they think about people joining social movements, the impact that that joining of a social movement would have on an individual's life. Yeah, thanks for asking that. That really is at the heart of my analysis, uh, this concept of how social movements impact people's lives, and for me, how people, through participating in the movement, through gaining these experiences, start to reshape the, the movement that they joined, right? And so um, it, it, that's something, so to, to try to be direct first, yes, making that decision to join a revolutionary movement does have a deep impact on, on people's relationships, on their work, and other things like that. And the way that I demonstrate that is I actually try to trace some people's lives, look at their early childhood, look at life as, as a youth when many of them started to become politically active. And I try to understand what was it that drew these various individuals to this collective struggle that has such drastic goals. One of the things that I learned is that even even as deciding to become a revolutionary black nationalist ha is pretty life altering, it's not life altering in in this way uh, as as in a way that people might imagine. Right. It doesn't have this overnight. Oh, today I'm a revolutionary. So everything's different type effect. Instead, it causes people to rethink what they're currently doing. That, that's actually probably the biggest takeaway that, I, that I've gotten from doing this research. They reframe what they already had in mind to do. And so an example that I think helped illustrate this is uh, Nikichi Taifa, who, who actually I have to shout her out. Her book, Black Power, Black Lawyer, is coming out in just about a month. So definitely want to make sure that that's on everybody's radars. But I mentioned her because as a youth who became politically active, she was interested in learning how to use the legal system to help aid movements. Right. 
that didn't change because of her involvement in the new African independence movement. Instead, there was a shift. As she got involved, it helped direct how she would practice law, the type of law she was interested in, and the types of cases that she would take on. And so, whereas before, she, uh, I believe, was interested in being a criminal defense lawyer, once she actually went to law school, which was after she got involved with the New African Independence Movement, she started to focus on human rights law, which allowed her to work on issues of, of crime in the U.S., but also expanded the breadth, expanded what that would look like uh, in, in her legal practice. So what do these lifestyle politics look like? Because as you point out throughout your book, uh, the Republic of New Africa, it was criminalized. It was under police surveillance. It was the victim of the police state. It was basically wiped out by federal law enforcement. And you write activism influenced interpersonal exchanges, routine practices, and varying individual rationales that compelled New Africans to commit themselves to their various or their very ambitious goals. As each individual evolved within the protracted struggle, each individual reinterpreted the overarching arcing ideology and shifted his or her practices according to these new frames of reference. Therefore, a dialectical and reciprocal relationship bound new African activists, their movement and its concomitant ideas and the impact of their revolutionary work. These lifestyle politics may offer some insight into why their movement continues, even though the overwhelming majority of their black power contemporaries are demobilized. Are, Are lifestyle politics then even though, again, the, the, the Republic of New Africa was criminalized, are lifestyle politics the only politics left for black activists? No, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, okay, so when, when thinking about lifestyle politics, it's not something, in my assessment, that people can just uh, aspire to do, right? It's something that I think happens naturally when p- people participate in any organizing, right? And I focus on black revolutionary nationalism, but I think this is true of any organizing. And instead of thinking about that as a way to go about being an activist, which is what I think some people probably have in mind when they first hear the term. And in fact, W. Lance Bennett, the person who I brought the term for, that's what he, that's how he frames lifestyle politics. What I'm trying to help people understand is instead what, what you started to read, right? How once people get involved, it has an impact on how they frame their daily lives. And through the practice of activism, they start to reshape whatever movement or struggle they're involved in. And, and so I say it's not the only thing that people have left because I think what people have left is what we're seeing right now at the current moment, right? People are organizing around various issues, whether it be police violence and and defunding the police, whether it be uh, communal violence within black communities. Right. We were we're experiencing some of the worst violence that we've seen in a couple of years. And of course, if 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 you ask me what we see is only is only the tip of the iceberg. Right. Because we tend to focus on on gun violence what's happening that doesn't involve firearms, right? Something tells me that that's starting to, to spike as well. Um, and so people who are working on these issues, that's what they need to keep doing. And, and that's what I think this history of the New African Independence Movement helps people understand. Keep doing that work. Keep organizing. Keep working with people in your community. Keep putting pressure on the state to embrace, you know, embrace and, and actually accept human rights of everybody. And in the process of doing that, one of the things that makes the movement sustainable is for people to take seriously the impact that, that their activism has on their daily lives and to learn from it, right? Just like Nikichi Taifa did, just like so many others did certain opportunities, even through repression, start to come your way. And, and so one of the ways that I talk about that is through the, uh, the the work that people did for political prisoners, right? So many people, be, due to government repression, ended up in prison. And 
and it's a loss, right? It is objectively a loss to to have all those people go into the belly of the beast and to spend so much money trying to defend them or trying to help them get out. At the same time, because people are experiencing that and because their comrades are trying to help them out, it creates new opportunities to get people's attention and to get people involved. And so one of the things that I talk about in the book is International Solidarity Day for African Prisoners of War. And that original 1973 uh, gathering in my reading helped create the conditions for a lot of the political prisoner work that we see happening right now. And one of the examples that I use is that of the Jericho movement. And so some of the people who are involved in that 1973 gathering, um, the what I'll just call Solidarity Day for now, um, they ended up working with people like Safiya Bukhari, Jalil Muntakim, and others that led to the creation of the Jericho movement. And of course, the Jericho movement, which is still doing really important work, has uh, has been established for long enough to, to where we can say that it's had an influence on a lot of the prison abolition work and political prisoner work that we see today. And so, yeah, so no, lifestyle politics is not something that people should just aspire to do. It's not the only thing that people have left. Instead, it's a result of all of the on the ground grassroots work that, that people were doing in the 60s and 70s and that people continue to do now, as well as the mobilizations that come along with that. Because I'm afraid that far too often when people might hear terms that either allude to or are the actual words lifestyle politics, yeah. they think of white lifestyle politics, which is buying a reusable grocery bag yeah. or recycling, yep. and that this stuff is kind of a dead end. And you write, some historians have begun exploring the ways that social movement participation impacts activist lifestyles and conversely, how activists push social movement organizations to change and adapt to evolving contexts. To what extent then should every movement embrace lifestyle politics as a way to articulate the movement through daily act- activities? You know, that's that's a great question. I, I don't think, I think that people just kind of do it naturally. At least that's what I got from my research of this particular movement. And that's what I believe I've read in the work of people like Robin Spencer, right? When people get together to organize, especially when they organize as, as revolutionaries, they make decisions about everything from work to family life in ways that are supposed to enhance their ability to participate in the movement. And and so things like childcare and collective living, if we're thinking about the Panthers who who did a lot of that, it's, it's a natural result from what they have seen as a necessity. Right. We can't be out there in the streets selling papers, organizing people, doing P.E. all the time if we have to be at home raising our children. However, if we have some sort of child care in place that can keep all the children of these revolutionaries together, give them a particular type of education. Right. Because that's a huge part. How are you going to pass these these ideas on to your children? Then that frees us up to do the work in the streets without, you know, leading to the neglect of of our children. And and so um, I think that that's how we should frame this is is what happens, what what decisions do people make about their lives as a result of participating in the movement? And of course, and I'll continue to hammer this home, through their experiences in the movement, what do they then see the need for what evolution, what change does that then cause? That, that's what lifestyle politics is really trying to get at. You ask how will scholars and activists respond to state-sanctioned political violence, and what can we learn from the history and legacy of movements such as the movement for the new African independence, which have survived efforts by the state to destroy them? To what extent is the biggest challenge of any social movement how to survive state-sanctioned political violence? And is any movement claiming to be a social movement not a social movement if it does not have to ask itself how to survive state-sanctioned political violence? You know, on the latter question, I do think that there are some social movements that don't have to worry about that because they're movements that seek to protect what the state is already doing, right? 
And so uh, to create a semi-hypothetical example, there have been a number of protests across the country since March seeking the reopening of the economy and things of that nature. And they've been accompanied in some cases by by right-wing extremists who have exacted violence against Black Lives Matter protesters, Antifa folks, and and things like that. Uh, At least in terms of the cases that I'm aware of, I have not seen any government repression of those those mobilizations. Um, And I, I would love to have some examples of government repression of that those those folks um because i do think that it would help complicate the analysis that i have but historically i mean even with the ku klux klan they experienced repression but as uh david cunningham makes very clear that cunningham and others the repression that that terrorist organization experienced because it was a right-wing right supremacist terrorist organization the goal wasn't to destroy it and to kill the leaders and things like that. The goal was to control it, which is much different than black revolutionary nationalists have, ex- have experienced, much different from what uh, the anti-fascist folks from the 80s to the present have experienced, much different from what even the most liberal pro-America, we just want a piece of this pie activists have experienced. I mean, they, they assassinated <laughs> leaders from those movements as well. And so I don't think that if a movement doesn't experience government repression, it is not automatic. It's automatically not a social movement. Um, I just think that the way that the state. Yeah. In fact, I would just say that regardless of how the state interacts with these movements, that doesn't change them fundamentally from social movements Um, to, to get it. The first question you asked, if I recall correctly, about what lessons people can learn, how can they protect themselves against repression? Is it, did I, yeah, I remember yeah. that correctly? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, part of me wants to put a big question mark there because I would like to believe that I, as, as a historian of social movements and others such as Christian Davenport, who studies repression specifically, have kind of put everything out there that people need to know. Yet, repression still happens, it's still very effective. People are getting disappeared, they're being tear gassed, they're being shot in the eyes with rubber bullets. And the movements are being infiltrated and fractured. And and so, yeah, like I said, I, I wanna put a big question mark there. At the same time, I do think that if people devote serious time to study, develop their own intelligence apparatuses or apparatuses and things like that, they can at least minimize the repression that they experience and minimize the effects of that repression. Um, So once people learn how to spot an infiltrator, for example, they can put things in place that, first of all, help expose whether that person is an actual agent of the state. And then if so, they can figure out how to protect themselves from such persons. And and I want to be clear, I'm not saying, because people have made a lot of mistakes on this and and they need to study these mistakes as well. Um, I'm not saying that they have to go to some sort of extreme violence or something to eliminate those people. In fact, I would say just the opposite. Just leave them alone. Um, Know who they are, expose them to the extent that is necessary, and then the work pretty much is done. Um, because again, just one of the lessons that I think is important is people started to kill each other. And in some of these cases, people mistakenly killed the wrong people, right? And I think it's very important that people take that seriously because none of us ever knows everything and people are bound to make mistakes. And so for folks who find government repression important to understand and to to respond to, and hopefully everybody does, you also have to figure out, well, what is the appropriate response that won't do more harm than good? 
One last question for you. We've been mm-hmm. speaking with historian Edward Onichi, author of Free the Land, the Republic of New Africa, and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State, which is a fantastic book, and everybody should go check it out. It really is amazing. In it, you write... Uh, our final question that we do for each and one of uh, each and every one of our guests, Edward, is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. might hate to answer, or our audience <laughs> might hate your response. You write new Africans like their counterparts from the Black Power era to the present. Remind us that the lived experiences of one one's ideas and activism was never wholly an internal process faced in isolation and independent of outside forces. Instead, state agencies such as the FBI and local policing agencies, along with U.S. print and broadcast media, helped shape activist goals, socio-political positioning, collective new African identity, and the outcomes of their participation. And you underscore the importance of external forces in shaping the development of social movements as well as lifestyle politics, although the outcome of repression is often negative in the sense that it causes harm to activists and their loved ones, government fo- government hostility also helps shape the goals of movements, causes activists to rethink their beliefs and ideology, and has the potential to be a generative force in their collective political agenda. Edward, can state repression, can a police state be good for activism? No. <laughs> no. Um, and to clarify what I wrote there, because, yeah, I think state repression is just horrible, just absolutely horrible. Um, and, and that is one of the things that leads to way more harm than good, even if for some reason, the people who are being repressed actually need to be repressed. Um, and, and so what I'm, what I'm trying to get at there is not that state repression is good as much as activists develop adaptability and resilience. And through that adaptability and resilience, they start to rethink their goals. They add to them, maybe emphasize this thing, de-emphasize this other thing for a moment. And it, it demonstrates the ways that people are able to meet very real needs in any given moment. And so that, that's really what I'm getting at there. Not that state repression is good, but that, that people are creative that they use their imaginations, which is something that I actually learned how to do again through writing this history. And they find ways to carry on even when the the full weight of the state tries to destroy them. Edward, I really appreciate having you on the show this week. This really is a fantastic book and a part of thank history you. that I think everybody should know about. I, I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, and we're going to be doing everything we can to have you back on the show in the future because I've really enjoyed our conversation. So, so did I. Thanks so much for having me. I all really right. appreciate it. Take care. Have a good week. You too. Money is the root of all evil and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on August 25th, 1959, 61 years ago today, Tuesday. The great jazz trumpeter Miles Davis was playing at Birdland, the renowned jazz club on Broadway in New York City, when during a break between sets, he stepped outside to get some fresh air and helped a young white woman, young white female fan, hail a cab. And if there's one thing a black man should not have done back when America was great, that would be to have anything at all to do with any white woman. Ever. And don't worry, President Trump is doing everything he can, working hard to make America that great again. As the cab drove away, Miles was approached by a white New York police officer, see, who told him to move along. I'm working here, Miles told the cop, pointing to his name on the club's marquee. The cop said he didn't care where Miles was working and told him again to move along or he would be arrested because even having your name on the marquee above your head in huge letters wasn't enough to give you the right to actually be standing in front of that sign back when America was great and racist. As Miles stood his ground, a second police officer crept up behind him, because cops are like that, and clubbed him on the head with a nightstick. crowd began to gather, and the cops arrested Miles, who was now bleeding profusely. They took him to the precinct, where he was charged with resisting arrest and with assault and battery of a police officer. Photos of Miles Davis with blood running down his face appeared in New York newspapers and papers around the world. And the New York Journal 
American ran a front-page story by its columnist Dorothy Kilgallen, who had witnessed the incident. And having her write a column about it on the front page of the journal American, that was a big deal at the time. But two months went by before the charges against Miles Davis were dismissed in court, during which time he was deprived of his New York cabaret license and was unable to work, making him jobless for doing nothing but helping a white woman get a cab. No wonder Make America Great Again baseball caps are popular among police in the U.S. They think they make America great again every time they crack skulls with their batons. In Rotten History, August 28, 1955, 65 years ago this Friday, in a rural area not far from Greenwood, Mississippi, a white grocery store owner named Roy Bryant and his half-brother J.W. Millam paid an unannounced late-night visit to an African-American man named Mose Wright. Unannounced late-night visit by white men to a black man's home in 1950s southern U.S. And it sounds like somebody's about to make America great again, again. The white men were looking for Moses' 14-year-old nephew, Emmett Till. Oh, my God. Emmett Till, really? who was visiting from Chicago. Bryant's wife, Carolyn, had told him that while she was tending the store alone, Emmett had entered the premises and made sexual advances. And why am I thinking these advances never happened? Were completely made up in an entire lie. This sort of interracial flirting was seen as taboo in the Jim Crow South, and Bryant was beyond angry. He and Millam forced their way past Moe's right, got their hands on young Emmett, and forced him out of their car. They drove him to a deserted bar, barn deserted barn. Ugh, this is horrible. Beat him to a pulp, shot him in the head, and dumped his body into the nearby Tallahatchie River. And it, it was worse than that. There's barbed wire involved. I'd, and here I am describing this horrible scene, proving this really is rotten history. Emmett Till's bloated and disfigured body was sent three, sent, was found three days later. It was sent back to, de- sent back to Chicago, where his mother demanded an open casket funeral so that the world could see what had been done to her son and the scars and the barbed wire. It just, they haunt me. Every time I read or hear those words, I'm reminded of that awful image forever seared in my brain, just like Emmett's mother wanted it to be for all of history forever. Back in Mississippi, while residents and local media denounced the murders at first, but they became defensive when published photographs of Emmett Till's mutilated corpse made their state the target of international disgust. Because when you have been outed as truly, truly disgusting, the first thing you want to do is become defensive of just how disgusting you are. Hey, it's what disgusting people like Leonard Skinner do. After Bryant and Millam were acquitted by a local all-white jury, Natch, they gave a magazine interview in which they admitted to the kidnapping and murder and showed no remorse. Again, disgusting people, so what would you expect? The resulting public outrage became a factor in stoking support for the growing civil rights movement in the South. 62 years later, in 2017, Carol Bryant, who had long ago divorced her ex-husband, Roy, told an interviewer that she had lied in her original account of the grocery store incident. Really? Now, there's a stunning turn of events. She claimed she could no longer accurately remember the events of that day, but admitted that Emmett Till had done nothing to justify the violence done to him. There is nothing that justifies the violence done to Emmett Till, no matter what he did. No human being deserves to die that way under any circumstances, being tortured. Killing someone in the manner done to Emmett is inhumane, a crime against humanity. That's rotten history. Really, really rotten history, and this is hell. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show? Uh, Rick Perlstein is back on the show to talk about his book, Reagan Land, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, again, what is this week's question from hell? I uh, made a slight revision to make it sound a little bit better too. It's uh, what will we all what will we all be using as currency after the fall? Ah, do you mean the fall as in the season or the fall as in the event? Uh, we'll see what happens first. <laughs> <laughs> the winner of this week's question from hell, the person who has the favorite, our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, gets a "This is Hell" black trucker's cap with a global "This is Hell" logo in gray, which you can see right now by going to our site, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Alex, do you want to give some responses now, or you just want to wait till tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we can do some now. All right, oh, sure. it's eleven oh six. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'll make them fast. Okay. <laughs> 
What will we be all using as currency after the fall? Nick A says, whatever people use as currency during the winter. Right. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Report, Report that. Uh, Chris L says, I figure I'll just blow everyone kisses and make a run for it. <laughs> uh, Dan, C- Dan T says, all these filled up 2020 bingo cards. Julian G says, falafel? Well, that's the picture I used. This is falafel. I can only hope. Uh, Margie says, human bones. <laughs> what will we be using as currency after the fall? I think we already are using human bones. Uh, David, David Z says, probably Hanukkah guilt. What else? <laughs> Greg G says, signed. Anyone's signature. This is Hellstickers. Isa R says, pumpkin spice. Jack B says, novelty M&Ms. Benjamin C says, wampum. <laughs> Joe G says, face masks. What will be... What will we be using after the fall? Jeffy D says rectal osculation. Of course. Garrett L says revalued Iraqi dinars. <laughs> uh, Paolo S says experience. Same with which they pay interns. Leslie P says, can I use my arms? Can I use my legs? Can I use my style? Can I use my sidestep? I actually never knew it was sidestep in that uh, Can I use my fingers? Can I use my, my, my imagination? And finally, uh, Brian H. says, falafel sandwich, mm, the extra portion of cucumber sauce. What was the question? <laughs> Keep in mind the question because you a couple days is, what will we be using for currency after the fall? And Pete's answer is your mama. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.